Acts chapter 26. You guys may be thinking, all right, Chris, it's Easter. You can give Acts a break just for one week. You know, we've been working on this for about a year now. We can give it a break for one week for Easter, right? Well, most of the time when people think about Easter sermons, you typically have something from 1 Corinthians 15. That's where Paul talks about the resurrection of Christ. And I actually have a little snippet of this. This is 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 8. Now I want you to just listen to this, and I want you to see how Acts 26 ties into what he has to say about the resurrection. All right, so 1 Corinthians 15, 1 to 8 says, Now I want to make clear for you, brothers and sisters, the gospel I preach to you, which you received, on which you have taken your stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold to the message I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I passed on to you as most important what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then He appeared to over 500 brothers and sisters at one time. Most of them are still alive, but some have fallen asleep. Then He appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one born at the wrong time, He also appeared to me. Okay, so, so this is Paul giving his understanding of everything that he taught. He's saying, I gave you what the Scriptures had, and that was the Messiah dead, buried, and risen again. All right, so now we're getting ready to go into the final defense that Paul gives for his arrest. He's giving this to King Agrippa. We saw where Festus and Agrippa had gotten together last week, and so they did all the pomp and circumstance. They brought everybody in, all the Roman military, all the important people of the city. They're, they're coming to hear Paul give a defense of why he's in prison. And we're going to hear something very similar to this. And so I, I, I was so excited about chapter 26 that I almost preached it last week and thought, well, I, I mean, this is a, a pre-written sermon almost on, for Easter. And so I had to restrain myself. But now here we are. I'm excited about it and we got to get to work because I got a lot to do. So let's pray and we're going to dive into Acts chapter 26. Father, we're grateful for the love that you have shown us in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. We're grateful that the tomb is empty because that means that his sacrifice was sufficient for us, that if we put our faith in Him, we can have salvation, we can have restoration in our relationship with You, and that means so many things for the way that we get to live our life. And I praise You for the opportunity that we have to gather together to worship Your name in song and through opening up Your Word, and I pray You will be a, uh, honored and glorified here through our worship of You. We love You. It's in Your Son's name that I pray. Amen. All right, beginning Acts 26, we're going to look at verses 1 to 11 to begin with. Starts there, it says, Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and began his defense. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa. I am to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially since you are very knowledgeable about all the Jewish customs and controversies. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. All the Jews know my way of life from my youth, which was spent from the beginning among my own people and in Jerusalem. They have known me for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest sect of our religion, I lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand on trial because of the hope in God promised to our ancestors, the promise our twelve tribes hope to reach as they earnestly serve Him day and night. King Agrippa, I am being accused by the Jews because of this hope. 
Why do you, any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? In fact, I myself was convinced that it was necessary to do many things in opposition to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. I actually did this in Jerusalem, and I locked up many of the saints in prison since I had received authority for that from the chief priests. When they were put to death, I was in agreement with them. In all the synagogues, I often punished them and tried to make them blaspheme. Since I was terribly enraged at them, I pursued them even to foreign cities." So right off the bat, we're seeing Luke is getting right into it. He says that Agrippa gives Paul, they've already done all this pomp and circumstance of coming in, letting everybody see Festus is together with Agrippa. And now Paul is given the opportunity to give his defense. And it says that Paul stretches out his hand before he begins to speak. And to, to be sure, this is not an attempt to quiet the crowd down, right? Because he, he said he begins to speak when he was first arrested, right? He has to speak to the crowd. And when he speaks, it, the, the crowd quietens down. This is not what's happening here because you've got to remember who Paul, to whom Paul is giving his defense, right? You've got uh, the Roman governor, Festus. You also have King Agrippa. He's an insignificant king of a little territory, but he's still a king and they still honor him as a king. So He's got a, a title worthy of respect by Paul. Uh, along with these two, you have other Roman bigwigs that are in attendance. You've got military commanders. It says other prominent men in the city are, are here listening to his defense. And so if you're someone with Paul's status and you have this audience, you don't raise your hand to get people to be quiet. All right, so this is not him trying to get them to be quiet. He is offering up a, a symbol of respect to the king. And so by raising his hand, he's saying, I am trying to honor the king. And Paul, again, begins his defense with a little bit of flattery. Right? He tells King Agrippa that he considers himself to be fortunate to be making his defense before the king that day because the king is so knowledgeable about Jewish customs and controversies. Now, this is not going to have any impact whatsoever on the outcome of any of Paul's trials because the king has no authority over Festus in any way. And so there's no, there's no getting out of this for Paul. But still, when you're addressing someone, especially if you're going to give them the gospel, it's best to not insult them right off the bat. And in fact, if you can flatter them a little bit, by all means, do whatever you have to do to clear the road for the gospel message to go forth. Right? It could potentially lead to a favorable report for Nero, right? Because remember, Festus has no idea what to write in his report on why he's sending Paul to stand before the emperor, right? This is a situation that should have been settled a long time ago in a reasonable court of law, and yet it keeps escalating. And so he's trying to figure out what to say. And so he's brought King Agrippa in so that he can have that conversation. Like, all right, can you tell me what I should write so that I don't get in trouble for sending him to Nero? And so if he flatters King Agrippa, maybe that report has a little bit of, uh, it's, a little, it's a little nicer than what it could be, right? So we have him showing this flattery. And then also, Paul is about to share the gospel with King Agrippa and all those who are listening, right? So as I said, it could potentially make the ground a little softer where the seeds of the gospel are going to fall. And so as he spreads that, he flatters a little bit. And then after addressing King Agrippa, Paul shares about his life before Christ. 
Right? And one thing that would have stood out to Agrippa is Paul's early dedication to the Hebrew faith. Right? Paul tells Agrippa that the Jews have known him for a long time, probably, many of them probably for his whole life. And they know that according to the strictest sect of their religion, Paul lived as a Pharisee. Now what this means is that Paul was extremely devoted to the Jewish faith. Right? Very few people could out-religion a Pharisee. Right? They were very good at religion. Right? Religion is almost always doing something to make a deity happy with you. Something, anything. You might make a sacrifice. You might choose to live a very specific way. Uh, if your God is happy with you, then things will go well for you. And if you don't adhere to the things that makes the God happy, then things don't go well for you. That's pretty much how every religion on the planet handles their religiosity. Every religion except for the Christian faith. And so, if strict observance of the law was ever enough to win the favor of God, a Pharisee is going to be the one that is able to do it. Because they are so zealous about honoring the law of God. Right? So these people had the first five books of the Old Testament memorized. Right? Sometimes we have a hard time naming them, right? But they had every single word in these five books memorized. They strictly adhered to purification rituals. Anytime they touched something they weren't supposed to, they went through the process of purification. If they went somewhere they weren't supposed to, they go through the process of purification. If they eat something they're not supposed to, they go through this process of purification. And these people were experts in that. They were also experts on the law of God. Right, so if you had a question, you wanted to go talk to a Pharisee based on their knowledge of everything that the Old Testament had to say. All right, so this is who Paul was. And then on top of all of that, on top of all of that religiosity, you've got Paul who in his zeal to honor God, he would gladly participate in the torture and murder of incarcerated people who didn't believe as he believed because he thought that those people were contaminating his religion. And so in the passage, you, you heard, I punished them until they would blaspheme. Meaning, I would torture them until they would say what I wanted them to say, which was things against God, which then I could arrest them for and have them imprisoned for. And if they died in the process, all the better. That's less Christians we have to worry about. Right? That was Paul. As far as Judaism goes, Paul is all in. Like, you're not going to out-religion Paul. And Paul is still all in. Paul is still all in. Paul makes that clear in verses 6-8. through eight. He says, Now I stand on trial because of the hope in what God promised to our ancestors. The promise our twelve tribes hope to reach as they earnestly serve Him night and day. King Agrippa, I am being accused by the Jews because of this hope. Why do you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? See, in all of this, Paul has not ventured outside uh, of the Jewish faith. Paul understands that Jesus is the bodily fulfillment of every promise of the Messiah that was ever made by God through Moses and the prophets. Right? You see, the Jews understand that their sin separates them from God. Right? That's the reason for all those purification ceremonies. That's why it was necessary. That's why all the bloody sacrifices that you read about throughout the Old Testament are necessary. And the consequences of sin is death and separation from God forever. 
And so in order to help people atone for their sin, God provided a sacrificial system for them so that they might move in the right direction for redemption and repentance. But one day, the Scriptures foretold that the Messiah would come and He would make the ultimate sacrifice that would be sufficient to atone for sin forever. The ultimate sacrifice involved Him giving up His life, which He lived perfectly on our behalf, so that He could be the sacrificial Lamb, and that He would take our penalty, and in that He would conquer sin and death by resurrecting from the dead after securing the righteousness that He gives to us as a free gift. Now, we see that this messianic promise was fulfilled in Jesus, the Son of God, on the cross. Right? He took our punishment for sin, and after His death on the cross, Jesus laid in a borrowed tomb for three days because He was going to give it back again. He laid there for three days, then He rises again from death, which is what we celebrate each year on Easter Sunday, and it shows that His sacrifice was acceptable before God the Father. So we have an acceptable, once and for all, atoning sacrifice for our sin. If anyone will put their faith in Christ, He received their punishment and offers His righteousness, says, free gift for you. All you have to do is believe and submit yourself to Me. That, brothers and sisters, is the hope that Paul has had from the beginning of his faith. It's the hope that God promised to his ancestors. Paul is standing before Agrippa because he believes that Jesus of Nazareth is the fulfillment of all of God's promises to his people. He's still all in. Paul believes that Jesus died on the cross to atone for the sins of those who will put their faith in him and that he rose again from death and that he now sits at the right hand of the Father. And Paul wonders why he even thinks out loud rhetorically, why would anyone consider it incredible that God raises the dead? The Old Testament talks about it, right? And even if that wasn't the case, you've got the God who has the power to speak creation into being. If you've got a God who can tell nothing to do something and the nothing listens and does something, that's an amazing God. If that's the case, then how hard would it be for that God who can speak creation into being to resurrect someone from the dead? The answer is not hard at all. Paul says that's why he's on trial. He believes that God raises the dead and that Jesus is raised as the, the fulfillment of all of God's promises that God has ever made to His people. In 1 Corinthians 1, chapter, verse 20, it says, Paul says, for every one of God's promises is yes in Him. Therefore, through Him, we also say amen to the glory of God. All of God's promises came true in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And after this, Paul tells a story about how he met Jesus in verses 12 to 23. For those who have been with us throughout most of the book of Acts, this is becoming a familiar story. This will be the third time that we have heard Luke share Paul's testimony with us throughout since chapter 9 of Acts. Beginning in verse 12, follow along with me there. Paul says, I was traveling to Damascus under these circumstances with authority and a commission from the chief priests. 
King Agrippa, while on the road at midday, I saw a light from heaven brighter than the sun shining around me and those traveling with me. We all fell to the ground, and I heard a voice speaking to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. I asked, who are you, Lord? And the Lord replied, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. But get up and stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and a witness for, of what you have seen and will see of me. I will rescue you from your people and from the Gentiles. I am sending them, you to them to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, and that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a share among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So then, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. Instead, I preached to those in Damascus first and to those in Jerusalem and in all the region of Judea and to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God and do works worthy of repentance. For this reason, the Jews have seized me in the temple and were trying to kill me. To this very day, I've had help from God and I stand and testify to both small and great saying nothing other than what the prophets and Moses said would take place, that the Messiah would suffer and that as the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light to our people and to the Gentiles. And that sounds a lot like 1 Corinthians 15 to me. This is an Easter sermon that he is sharing with King Agrippa. You have the Apostle Paul, who used to go by Saul among the Jews. You've got a Hebrew name and a Greek name. Saul was Hebrew. Paul was Greek. And you see, he meets Jesus on the road to Damascus as he's making his way into the city in order to beat, arrest, and participate in the torture and murder of Christians. I don't know what you have on your schedule on most days, right? But... That's a pretty heavy order that he was going to do. And on his way there, Jesus shows up. And it says that it, he, when he showed up, there was a light that was brighter than the noonday sun. So as bright as the sun can possibly be, the light that Jesus had with him when he showed up threw everyone to the ground. They couldn't even look at him. And he, he then wants to know, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? We see here that Jesus associates with his church on a personal level. If you persecute the church, then you are persecuting Christ. And Jesus is not having it from Saul of Tarsus. You are not going to persecute my people. Saul has a role to play in God's kingdom. And Jesus has finally had enough of Saul resisting the call to enter into salvation. Right? That's what Jesus meant when he said it's hard for you to kick against the goads. The goad was a pointy stick right, that they would use on animals to get them to go. I've got a direction that I want you to go. I'm going to poke you with this stick and you're going to do what I want you to do or I'm going to poke you again with the stick. And the animals, they would get upset about being poked with a sharp stick and so they would kick out against it trying to get it away from them. And that's where the term kicking against the goads comes from. You're, there, someone's trying to get you to go somewhere and you're fighting against that effort. Right? So from this, we can assume that Saul has been called by the Holy Spirit into salvation at some point in, this, in his interactions with Christians. Right? All the way up to the point where we first meet him as he is approving of the, the stoning of Stephen 
At some point in this process, the Holy Spirit has been working on Saul's heart. And at this point, Saul has rejected that calling. And so Jesus says, enough is enough. He personally intervenes and he says, you will be my servant and my witness of everything that you have seen and heard in me. Saul is going to be used through the power of the Holy Spirit to open the eyes of those who are spiritually blind so that they might turn from darkness to light. Saul is going to be used through the power of the Holy Spirit to turn people from the power of Satan to the power of God. And Saul, through the power of the Holy Spirit, will help people come to faith in Christ so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and share among those who have been sanctified by faith in Jesus. God has a plan for Saul. And it's time for Saul to get with the program. So Saul, now going by the Greek version of his name, Paul, tells King Agrippa that he had been obedient to Jesus' call on his life. Paul meets the resurrected Christ and it changes him foundationally. Now his personality is still the same. Like I said, Paul is all in. But now, instead of fighting against Jesus of Nazareth, he is one of the top spokespersons for Jesus of Nazareth. He's the greatest missionary that's ever lived. He's one of the greatest evangelists that have ever lived. So Paul takes all of that zeal that he had for fighting against the church, and all of a sudden it's flipped on its head, and he applies it to the church into making as many followers of Christ as he could. And it's nuts. Paul says, first things first, I preached in Damascus. Right, that, that town, that city where I was going to try to destroy people in, I decided to start there. I was already there, so might as well utilize it. So, you know, you get these people, they, they hear Saul Tarsus is coming, and all of a sudden he's like, no, I'm, just, I'm Paul now, we're good. Right. I would assume that would be a tough crowd to preach to, right, <laughs> to start with. It says from there, he goes on to Jerusalem, Judea. And then he goes to the Gentiles telling everyone that they should repent and they should turn to God. And when they have done that, then they should do works worthy of repentance. Now we hear worthy of repentance. And we might think, you know, does that mean that we can have, uh, we can use our works towards our repentance? Right? Does it mean that God weighs out our salvation based on how much work we do? Right? If we do good stuff, does that help us in our salvation? And then the answer is simply no. No, that's not at all what Paul is getting at here. There aren't enough good deeds in this world for you to do that will outweigh your sinfulness before a holy and righteous God. Right? Isaiah 64 verse 6 says that we have all become like one who is unclean. All of our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. Right? So it's not your deed that's the problem. It's you doing the deed that is the problem. If we are unclean and we do a righteous deed, we therefore make the deed unrighteous because we are unclean. Right? So therefore, Paul he can't be suggesting that we become worthy of of our repentance through our works so we can never be good enough to earn our salvation. But if we are people who have come to faith in Jesus, there will be evidence of transformation from death to life in our lives that play out by the works that we do. Right? We're going to be motivated to take care of orphans and widows. 
Right? We're going to be motivated to serve the church and fulfill the 59 one another's that we find in the pages of the New Testament. Right? Things like love one another, serve one another, bear one another's burdens, rebuke one another when you start wilding out and going crazy. Right? Praise one another, sanctify one another. Right? If we love Jesus, we're going to be serving the church. We will be motivated to share our faith and to sacrifice for others. Right? These are the works that he's saying are worthy of repentance. Right? If you have repented, then do works that are worthy of that repentance. This is the message that Paul's been preaching throughout the world. And it's for this reason that the Jews seized him in the temple and were trying to kill him. Paul then says that absolutely everything that he's been saying, right, everything that he's been saying with the help of God is in line with everything that Moses and the prophets said would take place. Moses and the prophets said the Messiah would suffer. The, Moses and the prophets said that the Messiah would be the first one to rise eternally from the dead and that he would go forth from there proclaiming light to the Jews and the Gentiles. The Jews want to kill Paul because they believe that what Paul is teaching and preaching is blasphemy. When in reality, Paul is teaching the very things that they say that they believe. Right? Isaiah 53 says that the Messiah would be a suffering servant, that he would be despised and rejected by men, that he would be punished and crushed by God for our iniquity. Psalm 22 is clear about how the Messiah would die. If you read Psalm 22 along with more detailed accounts of the crucifixion, you are going to see that thousands of years before crucifixion was an option Anything that had been invented, the psalmist foretold that the Messiah would have his hands and feet pierced. He foretold that evil, evildoers would surround the Messiah and cry out mockingly. He foretold that people would cast lots for his clothing. I mean, read Matthew 27, read Luke 23, and you're going to see the similarities in these passages with Psalm 22. Right? Psalm 16 promises that the chosen one would not be abandoned to death. He would not see decay. Daniel 12.2 says that those who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to eternal life and some to disgrace and eternal contempt. And Isaiah 26.19 speaks again of the concept of resurrection. Nothing that Paul has been saying is outside of the Jewish religion. So the scriptures are fairly clear on what's going to happen to the Messiah. But the Jews had a serious misconception of who the Messiah would be and what the Messiah came to do. And because of that, they were not capable of looking at Jesus in the right lens to see that he is the fulfillment of everything that they believe. And because Paul said that this is the continuation of our faith, they want Paul dead. Well, if, if you think that the Jews struggle to believe these things about Jesus, can you imagine how all of this might sound to someone who has no connection to the Scriptures at all? Right? Everything that Paul has been saying to them should ring a few bells in their conscience. Hey, I've heard that before. I've heard that before. But imagine all of this to someone who has never heard anything from the Scriptures before. It sounds kind of crazy, Right? Festus, the Roman governor, seems to think so. Look at what he says at the end of our chapter this morning, beginning in verse 24. 
As he was saying these things in his defense, Festus exclaimed in a loud voice, You're out of your mind, Paul. Too much study is driving you mad. But Paul replied, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus. On the contrary, I'm speaking words of truth and good judgment. For the king knows about these matters, and I can speak boldly to him. For I am convinced that none of these things has escaped his notice, since this was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you believe. Agrippa said to Paul, are you going to persuade me to become a Christian so easily? I wish before God, replied Paul, that whether easily or with difficulty, not only you, but all who listen to me today might become as I am, except for these chains. The king, the governor, Bernice, and those sitting with them got up. And when they had left, they talked with each other and said, this man is not doing anything to deserve death or imprisonment. Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been released if he had not appealed to Caesar. So all this talk about messiahs and the resurrection of the dead and salvation, it seems crazy to Festus. Right? This is a man that comes from a pluralistic society with petty gods who don't really care all that much about what humanity does. And all of a sudden you're talking about the God of the universe who loves you so much that He would send His only Son to die on the cross for you because of your sin seems nuts. Right? He thinks... Paul is spending too much time reading old books that have no bearing on reality. And does that sound familiar to any of you at all? Does that sound like a, a pervading view uh, in our culture about anyone who believes that the Bible is actually true? You see, most people believe this idea that at best, the Bible is historical fiction. Right? It's just... It's got some historicity in it, but it's got some crazy stuff in there with talking bushes and talking snakes and uh, people walking on water and rising from the dead and all this kind of crazy, crazy stuff. But, you know, we're enlightened, so we know better than all of that. Right? So this, this notion that that book has no bearing on our lives is not new. It's been around for ages. Festus thinks, hey, Paul has spent too much time studying the Scriptures and it's corrupted his mind. Right, it's broken him. He believes all of this nonsense and he's become unhinged. Right? And so this response, it should not surprise us in any way, shape, or form. Paul clearly says in 2 Corinthians 4, 3-6, through but if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. Festus has zero ability to understand the truth of God's Word because he is not of the Lord. He is currently standing in condemnation. So it is veiled to him. It continues on. It says, In their case, the God of this age has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we're not proclaiming ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord, and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of God's glory in the face of Jesus Christ. Festus's eyes are blinded to the truth. He can't see it. There's no way for him to see it. Without the intervention of the Holy Spirit, Festus will never see the truth about Jesus. If the Holy Spirit does not work in Festus's heart, there is no way for him to understand the truth of the gospel. And Agrippa has the same problem. Right? Paul responds to Festus by saying, I'm not out of my mind. I'm speaking words of truth and sound judgment. The king knows what I'm saying is true. Right, Agrippa? 
right? You, you've heard this before. You know this is true, right? The stuff that happened with Jesus, it wasn't done in a corner, right? It turned the world upside down, right? The, the disciples turned the world upside down. So King Agrippa obviously has heard about this. You've heard about this, right, King? Right? You believe, don't you? And Paul knows that Agrippa doesn't yet believe. But the gospel has been presented and Paul is calling for a response. Right, you've heard the truth. What are you going to do with the truth? You've heard the truth. Are you going to have your eyes open to that truth and are you going to put your faith in Jesus? Or are you going to continue to be stubborn and pursue your idolatry and pursue your sinful ways? What are you going to do, King Agrippa? He says, you know about Jewish customs. You know about controversies. Are any of these things that I have talked to you about ringing any bells in your soul? Is there any work of the Holy Spirit going on in your life right now that this is starting to make sense to you, King Agrippa? Are you ready to repent and turn to Jesus as your Savior? And unfortunately, Agrippa was not yet ready to come to salvation. Agrippa says, are you going to persuade me to become a Christian so easily? And I love Paul's response. I love Paul's response. He says, I wish before God that whether easily or with difficulty, not only you, but all who listen to me today might become as I am except for these chains. So Paul says, look, King, I don't care if your salvation comes from this conversation or if you make me work for it. I just want to see you saved. I don't care what it takes. And I want that for every single person in this room. I don't care if you come easily. I don't care if you make me work for it. I just want you to be as I am. He said, just maybe without being shackled. Maybe we can just have that salvation thing and, and go about our lives without actually being in chains. Right? I want all of you to repent of your sin, to come to saving faith and the atoning sacrifice of Jesus. I want you to realize that God really does raise people from the dead. He really does. And Jesus is the first of many to come. But unfortunately, the king doesn't come to faith in this moment. And neither, neither did his sister or the governor. They all get up. They leave without placing their faith in Christ. They confer. They go out and talk about Paul's case. Right? And they agree that Paul has done nothing uh, that was worthy of being imprisoned and certainly not anything worthy of being dead. And so there's that, I guess. I mean, even, if the, even though it's not going to guarantee Paul's release, Paul's essentially deemed not guilty, but he's still going to stand before the Roman governor or uh, emperor. But this is what God had in store for him from the beginning. So it's not like this is a failure. Paul just got to present the gospel. Paul just got to talk to an entire room full of Roman dignitaries about the resurrected Christ and what that means for salvation for all these people. And so this is an unmitigated success. God knew what He was doing. Right? He is going to go from this place and He's going to share the life, death, and resurrection with all of the people as He goes, even to the point of sharing it with Caesar himself. What about you, though? You have the same appeal before you this morning that Festus, Agrippa, and Bernice had before them all those years ago when Paul stood before them giving them the gospel. What are you doing with that appeal? I think for our application, this passage gives us several things that we should do if we're going to follow Paul's lead 
this Easter morning. Number one, believe. Believe. Some here today might be non-believers. And this message of salvation is presented to you through the Apostle Paul as clearly as it can possibly be. Right? The, the, the Bible is one cohesive book. It tells the same story from beginning to end. Paul is saying, I believe this. I believe this. Jesus is the Messiah. He came to live and die the death that you deserve and be resurrected so that you could be restored in favor with God the Father. And he's presenting that to you as a gift here this morning. If you don't have it, will you take it? And if not, why? What could possibly be better than what is offered to you in salvation in Christ? I would love to have that conversation with you. If you are not certain about your salvation, and there's some things that you think, maybe this is better, let's talk. But that's the first thing that you can do here this morning. If you're not a Christian here today, is believe. Believe in the salvation that is offered to you in Christ. The second thing that we can do as followers of Christ is know the Scriptures. Right? Paul was standing before Agrippa because of the hope in what God had promised to his ancestors. He says he said nothing other than what the prophets and Moses said would take place. The Messiah is going to suffer. The Messiah is going to rise from the dead. And the Messiah is going to proclaim light to the Jews and to the Gentiles. All of this is written in the Scriptures. And to be good defenders of our faith, we've got to know the Scriptures. Right? We have to know this book as well as we possibly can. Right? Paul will eventually say to his disciple Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, all Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Right? If we are going to do works that are worthy of our repentance, then we have to know the book so that we can be equipped for that work. So we have to know the Scriptures. Number three, share the gospel. Tell your story. All right? People may not believe anything else, but when you start sharing, this is what happened to me. Right? How can they refute that? This was my experience. I mean, especially now, like they've worked themselves into a corner at this point, but because you can't dispute my truth. My truth, your truth, we all have our own truth, right? No, that's nonsense. But because of that, you can't refute my truth. And so you get to listen to me share my faith and I can talk to you about Jesus because that's part of my truth. Share your story. Talk, about, talk to people about who you were before Jesus. We saw that in Paul's description. Talk about what happened when you met Jesus. We saw that in Paul's description here in his defense. Talk about who you are after meeting Christ. It's all there. This is a perfect example of sharing your testimony. If you don't know how to do it, read chapter 26. Paul gives a master class in evangelism here on sharing your testimony. But share the gospel. People will spend eternity somewhere. And it is our responsibility to make sure that the people that God has sovereignly placed around us hears the gospel. That's why we're in their lives. Number four, call for a response from those to whom you share the gospel. Right, that's one thing I think we often miss. Paul said, King Agrippa, do you believe? I know you believe, right? He called for a response. Now, sometimes, depending on our interaction, that might not be the appropriate step. But 
Don't ever miss the opportunity to tell to, to share that people need to respond to this beautiful message. Right? Don't let them walk away without taking the opportunity to try to follow up or do something. But share the gospel with them and say, do you want to make a decision about this today? Do you want to talk more about this? Do something with the information that I've just given you. Call for them to respond in some way. And number five, work for the kingdom of God. Right? Salvation involves more than just being saved from something. Right? So many people, they, they pray a prayer and they're like, okay, good, I am, I've got my get out of hell free card and that's the end of my life. I don't have to do anything else. But we are saved to something. All right, we are saved to the kingdom of God. It's not just about getting out of hell. It's about working to make sure that God is glorified and that His kingdom is bolstered through every aspect of our life. We are to bring Him glory. And so every single day, find some way to do work for the kingdom of God. Pray for someone. Text someone. Speak to someone. Take someone out for coffee. Say, look, we need to talk about the gospel. I love you. You need to hear about Jesus. Right, I see you're struggling. Let me help you. Let me do something, anything, to get one stumbling block out of your way so that you can see that the God of this universe, the one who spoke creation into being, the one who sent His Son to live and die on your behalf, that He loves you. I'm here to show you that. Let me mow your grass. Let me take out your trash. Let me fix your car. Let me do whatever it is that you do. Do that for someone to the glory of God. But this is the calling that we have, right? Believe, know the Bible, share the gospel, call for response, and work for the kingdom of God. And when we go forth and do these things, next Easter, this place will be packed because of the people that have had impact because of our sharing of that faith. Let's pray together. Father, I love you. I love the fact that you, knowing that I am unclean and unworthy, that you sent Jesus to die for me. And I pray that if there's any heart in here that has not yet accepted that, that today would be the day of their salvation. That we would get to celebrate baptism, a first communion, that we would get the, have the opportunity to praise a new brother and sister in Christ for coming into the family. And Lord, if... We have lots of people here today that, that know you and have grown in sanctification in their pursuit of you. I pray that today would be uh, the day that you motivate them to share the gospel, to dive deeper into the word, to have kingdom impact with their lives. And as we leave this place today, as we celebrate the beautiful resurrection of Jesus that showed that his sacrifice was acceptable and that we can have salvation in him, I pray that we would go from this place and that we would radiate the light of his love and joy and the beautiful message of the gospel to everyone that we meet. I ask this in your son's precious name. Amen.